and welcome to the TNW podcast. I am your host, Andre Degeler. I know what you are thinking right now. Didn't you release the first episode just yesterday and wasn't it supposed to be a weekly show? Yes, that is absolutely correct. You will indeed hear our next normal episode on Wednesday, but I thought that today was a good day for a bonus episode. And not just any bonus episode, but one that's focused on the topic of femtech. So, to give you something to listen to over the weekend, I wanted to share two great interviews. The first one is actually with the very person who coined the term femtech. So, give it up for Ida Tin, the co-founder and former CEO of the period tracking app Clue. So, Ida Tin, thanks a lot for joining. Welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure being here. So uh, if we can start with uh, talking about maybe you first and then Clue and then the space of Femtech, so taking a wider and wider uh, view of things. So can you talk a little bit more about uh, your own uh, background? Uh, what were you doing before uh, founding Clue, uh, during and after? I've pretty much always been an entrepreneur. I had a motorcycle touring agency with right. my dad, so <laughs> I was doing motorcycle tours around the world. I started Clue because I wanted a new type of birth control for myself. And I was like, well, I think actually the whole world needs this. <laughs> um, there had been no innovation since the pill came out in the 50s, which is very, very long ago. And I grew up with my crazy adventurous family traveling the world on motorcycles. So I'd seen a lot of the planet and had this thought that maybe I could actually create this and it would be helpful for all the people that I'd seen out there having quite a lot of babies, some of them. Right. And uh, so you've co-founded uh, co Clue in uh, 2012, right? So what was it uh, What was it like at that point, uh, uh, founding a startup in the femtech space that was not called femtech space at that point, uh, finding the first, uh, the first money for it? Uh, what was the process like? Well, the first part of the process was that I moved away from Copenhagen, actually. I moved to Berlin because there mm -hmm. wasn't really much of a tech system back in the day. And I wanted to build a really complicated hardware piece, mm -hmm. I thought. I tried for quite some years. So okay. the partners I found were um, a technology institution outside Berlin. That was um, Fraunhofer Institute. Uh -huh. They had a lot of different institutes oh, yeah. and they had one particular one that was like, oh, I think you guys can do that. <laughs> Turned out they couldn't, but neither could I. So <laughs> that worked out fine. But um, I mean, it was difficult because people thought that what we were building was niche, mm -hmm. which is pretty... It's a pretty Strange. big niche. It's a, it's a big niche. I like, wait, you say that. <laughs> it was really big. And now I think people recognize that, of course, it's not niche at all. It's huge. It's actually like pretty much relevant to every single woman and arguably the men too. So something has changed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so what kind, of, what kind of hardware did you have in mind initially then? Oh, I wanted to build a hormone reader based on saliva. So mm -hmm. the idea was that you could do like a super fast test would take 15 seconds, kind of like what we did during COVID, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. just for hormones, because I figured if you knew exactly where you were in your cycle, you would know, is this the day I can get pregnant? Yes or no? Because right. really it's only six days per cycle. Right. It was a great idea. And it was great to then six years later and a lot of <laughs> sweat, blood and tear realize that we could do this all with only data and math. Right. So then we became, we being Clue, um, the world's first FDA cleared all digital type of birth control. Right. So basically what it is, is a tracking app that uh, has some uh, AI, some analytics under the hood that uh, gives you information on uh, whether it is a fertile day or not for you. I like you way, the way you make it sound really simple. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Plus all the regulatory side, which is pretty 
important and kind of complicated because it's not enough that I say I can do this. I have to prove that I can do this. So there's a clinical trial. There's the whole quality management system that guarantee that we can actually do this. Right. So I understand that in 2021, uh, you got this FDA uh, clearance uh, in the U.S., I, but I still don't fully understand why did you need it? Like, why why would an uh, like an app, uh, even like a health-focused uh, uh, app, need an FDA clearance? It's because if if I'm telling you, assuming you could get pregnant, that today you cannot get pregnant, that's a pretty big promise. It's a big marketing claim, and when claims get big enough, we have as society decided that they need to be regulated. So this is it. Will, you know, it it passed that threshold. Um, so if I wanted to go out and sell that in the world, I had to get the clearance. It's a regulated space. Does it mean that you got uh, the European clearance uh, before that? No, we actually chose to do it in the US first, which had a lot to do with the unexpected timelines for the clearance process in Europe. There was like waiting times and they were like, they were changing stuff. And it was like, come together, like, you guys don't like, you are unreliable as a business partner, basically. So we went to the US first. Mm-hmm. And now that uh, and now that the clearance is in place, what has it changed for the app? Because uh, the app was functioning before 2021 as well. So think about it. So women go through all these different stages in her reproductive life journey. So she's a teenager. She doesn't want to get pregnant. Then maybe at some point she does want to try for a pregnancy. Then maybe she is pregnant. She goes into the menopause eventually. So we want a clue to be able to take people, users, mm-hmm. by the hand throughout all of that journey. And we didn't want people to... Use Clue, be happy users. Then they got pregnant, and then the app was totally irrelevant. So we built a pregnancy app. But then you're not pregnant anymore. You don't want another baby <laughs> straight away, <laughs> most likely. So it was really to complete that whole journey. Right, right. I understand. So, so you mean that before 2021, you were not allowed to do parts of it, or? Right. So we could not do. We could not say we can help you not get pregnant. Right. We could help people get pregnant, which is great. Okay. Um, yeah, but then also I'd like to add that in the world there are 200 million people who wants birth control who doesn't have access and some of them have phones you know so from kind of a mission perspective it made a lot of sense to try and build a product that could really meet a very substantial need on the planet no uh, no uh, absolutely and how big is clue now then where, where are we measuring? <laughs> uh, in, in terms of, uh, like, we measure everything. So the size of the company, so like the headcount, uh, funding raised, um, monthly active users. So 80, um, about 60 million, I think. I'm actually losing count and about 11, 12 million. 11, 12 million monthly active users. And uh, what's the business model? So how does the app make money? Very simple. If you're a user and you want premium features, you pay. Right. So no selling data, no advertisement. Uh. <laughs> there is no business model under the table. It's a business model where we can use, we can look users in their eyes and be like, this is how we make money. You, you understand it. That is how we make money. And that has been a really important point for us because I think how you make money defines who you are. And you cannot ask people to share the most intimate data and then not honor that trust by doing funky things with their data. That's my belief. Right. But now, but now that you're not, uh, not the CEO, you step down, but you're sure that this sort of ethos will, uh, will continue. So far, so good. And I will also say we are in a venture capitalist system where there is uh, pressure to make money. And that makes it harder as a CEO to keep holding your boundaries. It, and, and that, you know, I think they have done an amazing job, the co-CEOs. 
but it's also on investors and their limited partners to give a mandate where success is not only money and fast money, but potentially data privacy. And let's measure that. We're doing great on data privacy. It's <laughs> <laughs> perfect. And uh, uh, in terms of uh, profitability, has has the app uh, broken even so far? Oh, we're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll talk. We'll, we'll talk again in a few months just uh, to yes. uh, to redo this one question, and then <laughs> we'll be able to say that. Uh, perfect. And what's the what's the competition landscape like? I understand that you were probably the first, if not. Uh, maybe one of the first uh, apps to start doing this. What is it like right now? I I'm sure there are more competitors. Yes, which is a good thing because our biggest competitor is that people don't know that these kind of products exist. Right. But we have had competition that were willing to cut corners that we were not willing to cut and it cost us. It meant that they had fast growth. It meant that, that based on those numbers, they could raise amount, you know, huge amount of capital. It meant that they could get their ad engine going faster than we could. So it has had a real economic price to have our, you know, ethical lines. But I will say over time, I think we'll catch up because they won't get, you know, called out by authorities for having done things that are not actually legal. But also there is raising awareness among people that are like, no, it's like, don't fuck with my data. Like, that's not cool. So when people know the difference between different companies, they're like, yeah, I want this instead of that. But of course, most people don't know. It's really hard to navigate. It's so hard. So actually, I would love to see some sort of certification, like we have organic food stamp, some sort of a good data practice for tech companies. Because as a consumer, you have zero chance of knowing what's going on. I mean, one of our big competitors, they claim to be a U.S. company when, in fact, they are a company out of Belarus. <laughs> You know, right. <laughs> and so and the second biggest competitor is Chinese. People don't know that their very sensitive health data goes to China. So, how do you educate people? It's it's a journey. It's a, yeah. it's a huge task. And right now, the bulk of your users are in the U.S. Then, if that was your first focus, we actually launched globally. So it's about a third in the U.S., a third in Europe, and a third global. Right. Interesting. And uh, so, and I also saw uh, when I was uh, looking at your website that there is right now a hardware product not made by you. You're working with Aura, right? The, the Aura ring uh, from... We have uh, an integration Sandwich. or we had, I should, I'm like, I'm not sure I know exactly. <laughs> so I was like, ah, <laughs> that's the cost of not being operationally involved. We rebuilt a whole app from scratch last year. We called it Rebirth. It's kind of things that make CTOs very nervous because usually it never works. It actually worked. But one of the prizes was that we had to simplify the product temporarily. I'm not sure if Aura made the cut for the first version, so that's why I don't actually know if it's in. Um, so hardware integrations, um, oh, I love hardware. Like I'm always <laughs> like, yes, bring it on. But it's not always so easy to make it like really, like you can't really find the good arguments. How many Clue users have Aura rings? I mean, here. Yeah, yeah here, here but, probably you know, a like, lot. <laughs> but you know, honestly, we build menopause. That's much more meaningful than integrating with Aura. Sorry, I like Aura. I know. Too. No, if, no, if you have to prioritize, like, if you but, have to prioritize, but, I, but so, I don't understand. And you have to all the time. I mean, as much as we've raised, I always feel we've been kind of underfunded and, you know, just had to prioritize so hard all the time. Right. And do you still, do you still have in the back of your mind that idea of the hormone analyzer? Yes, and it's it's being built. People have built this stuff. And I you know, I love that we can test things and look into the body on a more molecular level. Um and it's coming. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things with femtech rising is that people are building cool stuff. So hormone sort of 
um, products, you know, getting to know your hormone stuff, which is relevant to so many different things in your body, is happening. So, but again, it's still to be explored exactly what data streams actually improves kind of the, you know, the accuracy of the predictions we can make, etc. And what is your current accuracy? I mean, for period tracking, it's really high. We have lots of stories where people are like, oh, I got the notification two hours later, like, clue, like, you're like, but it, I mean, of course, it depends how regular you are as a person. And for the, for the contraception, we had um, a 92% um, efficacy rate for typical use and 97 for ideal use, which is really high. I mean, the pill is 99, but just to give a sense of like, Condoms is in the 70s range, so. What's, what's ideal use? So ideal use is if you do exactly as you're supposed to all the time, every time. Mm -hmm. So if And it's that a red is login, a login, what, what sort of data? So if you, so you actually just log the first day of your cycle and then you, over time it also knows your cycle length. But if you use it on a day where it's red, but you kind of think, no, no, I'll be fine today. That's not ideal use. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so in the beginning, it'll have more red days. And then over time, as it gets to know your data, it shrinks it. But that's, of course, a safety precaution. But people sometimes think like, oh, you know, I, I, I can shorten it myself. All right. But then, uh, as far as I understand, you collect uh, more data uh, on, for example, mood changes and uh, that type of thing. Uh, how does that work? So it's really fascinating. We're learning that these hormonal changes we have, they change pretty much everything in our body. It changes our social behavior, our physical activity levels. It changes how we perceive vision, smell, how we build muscle mass, how we think. And so if you think about, you know, navigating life, it makes a lot of sense that you have an awareness of what's happening with my hormones. And so when you ask people to track their mood, it's because it's, you know, it's a relevant data point for you to navigate your life. And if you know, oh, this part of the cycle, I'm just going to be in a bad mood. It's helpful to know for you, maybe also for your surroundings. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, so. And you have this uh, partner uh, or like a closed, uh, closed one sharing uh, ability as far as I remember. Yes, this is one of the things that also got caught, but it's also coming back. And mm -hmm. I love that feature because I meet so many men who, wants to know what's going on they want to be supportive or they want to be warned what you know so i i always want to be including men into this world it has been so hidden from men and therefore from culture for so long yeah, and no, it doesn't absolutely. matter right <laughs> so but you have step down from the CEO role, you're not uh, uh, all that operationally involved. Uh, uh, what are you doing now? What do you do with all this uh, free time? Oh. <laughs> um, I'm working on a book mm -hmm. about technology, femtech, leadership and systems change. Trying to kind of draw this picture of, you know, what, what I learned as a person, like my personal journey doing this work. It's relevant to how we build organizations and it turns out it's also relevant to how we form the planet. So I'm trying to see if I can draw that line. Um, and other than that, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sort of learning to go from 10th gear just to like, what does first and second gear feel like? It's like a whole body discovery process, which actually takes a lot of time. Uh, so what, is there a timeline for the book? 
soon. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have it published in the US. I have an agent. I'm working on the proposal, which I did the, you know, first you should write the proposal and then the book. I did the other way around, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> so um, next year, I'm hoping it will be out next year. But publishing is super slow, so let's see. Yeah, no, I'm very much looking forward. And uh, then we can uh, come to the question of Femtech. So you were the one who actually created the term itself, uh, coined it first. Uh, what was your own definition of Femtech when you started using it? I think of it, I, it actually hasn't changed that much. It's technology that are addressing the needs that we have because of our specific biology, female biology. So, you know, it has been overlooked in the tech world that we have needs that are specific because we have this kind of high maintenance hardware in us or I guess it's software but you know what I mean <laughs> and um, so yeah product services that addresses those needs because I've seen I've seen I've seen really different uh, different uh, definitions mm -hmm. that uh, uh, sprouted after uh, after we coined the term. So uh, some only look at the health related uh, uh, things. Uh, some uh, take it uh, much wider and basically everything that serves the female audience. So so so. But you, but you still sort of want to anchor it on the biological needs. I would love a world where we build technology where we had a gender awareness. Like if I'm building a car. How I'm going to use it is going to be a little bit different because as a mother of two, I know that that middle part is going to be super dirty and they always build it in a way that you cannot clean it. Like, why? <laughs> or, okay, if I have period pain, like, my car could help me, you know? Or it doesn't take much, but it takes an awareness of like, oh, if I was in that body, what would I need? So we should build all of our products with that awareness. And there could be the, like, specific type of beer thing that doesn't smear lipstick or something ridiculous. You know, there could be all kinds of things. The problem is that if we think about femtech being that, we'll end up, I think, with a lot of pink products. Right. And that's like totally not the point <laughs> in my world. So let's keep it to the things where it's really specific has to be different, what you were saying. Mm -hmm. But then within that, probably we'll have something that is, oh, femtech bone health that special or how we express heart health or something else so i think rather than making it super broad we probably need subsections and probably you know man tech too because there are specific health needs that men have that i don't have and we could address them more precisely Right. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And then, uh, so Clue has been uh, raising money throughout its existence. And I, was, I, want, I wanted to go back to this uh, question of how the fundraising process for an app that focuses on, uh, uh, on, on females, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, femtech-focused, uh, how has it changed like, from the first round like, to, the, to the latest round you were involved in? Has it become easier? <sighs> no. Because <laughs> the bar keeps going up, of course, as you get older as a company, which is right. And now there's been a lot of interest in femtech, but it's like pre-seed, seed, maybe a series A. It doesn't really matter to me as a later stage company. And then there was the search of like, oh, we don't have any female partners in VC funds. We should have some. They got a few. Then they're like, oh, female founder come in. Let's match her up with a few guess what? She has like zero pull in the organization. She's frozen green. Like she's not going to get a deal through. So now I'm sitting talking to the person who can't get a deal through. That's even worse. <laughs> so possibly a transitional problem, but that was like a thing. And then I'd say 
So you have the hype of like, oh, femtech is going to be, you know, a one trillion billion dollar industry that was predicted. Yes, but guess what? You have to invest a lot of money too, you know? So people have invested peanuts for 10 years and they're like, where are the big exits? Where are the big mergers? Well, guess what? <laughs> you have to invest a little more for us to get there. So that's been another like, uh, mm -hmm. that we've been bouncing up against. But you've been mostly raising in the US. Or, no, or, or, also or in Europe. Europe. Yeah, we have UK investors as well and some family offices in Germany and random stuff. But but yeah, also from the US. So And also at conferences like uh, uh, the one we are at uh, right now, we always have these uh, reports, these uh, panels that focus on the stage of European tech, European VC. What is the stage of European femtech? You know, uh, can I answer this and say what's the status of just venture capital. So my sense is that we have a couple of planetary issues that we need to address. One of them being climate change, but we also have problems with wealth being monopolized. We have problems with lack of diversity across the board, like democratic issues. Tech has a huge outside responsibility in creating and solving some of these problems. And what we invest into forms our world. So the limited partners have to, in my mind, broaden out what they call success if it's only money that we care about. We can care about money, but not only. So as long as we do that, we end up building a world that's not sustainable. It's not just, it's not equal. It's not, you know, it's not healthy. So do I see that the venture capital world is recognizing this and be like, actually, we have a responsibility for what we build. Yes, it's emerging. I think it is. And I think that is global. But. <laughs> I was waiting for this one. But it's like, it's so slow. Like this change, I keep having meetings with, you know, female founders and they have amazing shit that they are building. And they're like, I cannot raise money. I'm like, you know, it, like things don't connect. The amount of bullshit that venture capitalists will write on their websites about being revelatory and change the world and founder friendly. I mean, I cannot hear it. Like walk the talk. So few are. Most people, they just follow the crowd. So few funds are truly thesis driven, but they're like, no, no, like we think this is true and we're going to invest this way. So few in my mind. So have you considered a VC career for yourself then? <laughs> That's a great question. I have, actually, because people kind of projected that role on me. So now it's like, you're shifting role. Like, now you, isn't this what you're going to do? <laughs> I'm like, oh, maybe. Like, I don't know. But so, yeah, maybe. I, I want to find the people who have the courage to be, and the willingness to potentially have, actually, maybe lesser return. Or maybe not. Maybe that's how we find out that we, or that we learn that's actually how you build sustainable businesses, we have to care about more things because more people are going to want us to do that. Yeah. And when I'm open for offers. Yeah. I mean, bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But when you talk about LPs, so like LPs are a bit more complicated, I guess, because we have all the institutions. Also, we have the uh, public uh, entities. But for public entities, it actually shouldn't be all that hard because they are all ostensibly very focused on uh, sustainability and uh, that type of thing. So do you think it's still not enough then? It's totally not enough. I mean... The big banks, 
particularly or the private sector, many of those in the private sector, bean banks, are investing more into fossil fuels, fuels than the public is investing into the green transition. I mean, is that enough? Like, it's minus. <laughs> you know, it's like wrong direction. No, it's totally not enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So, so, so you're talking to uh, to female founders a lot, uh, as you just said. Uh, what uh, what issues do you see? Like, uh, except uh, except the fact that it's really hard for them still to raise funding for whatever they're building. So, I think there is like I think that's very natural. But you have the innovation curve where there's a lot of cool innovation happening, and consumers still doesn't really know, or they don't really know that is still that is there yet. So the discovery is an issue. We have a lot of innovation in femtech that is not mass market, and it takes capital to make it mass market, right? So going from some sort of product validation to it being part of the world is still a lag. And then I think on the data side, we have a lot of scattered data all over. You have a little bit of data in your tracking app, in your running app, in some yeah, 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 yeah. Let's bring it together and make it really valuable and usable for the consumers. I think that's missing too. Right. Sounds great. Ida, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for joining. Pleasure yeah. having you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we recorded this interview back in September at the Tech Barbecue Conference in Copenhagen. And since then, I've been very excited to finally share it with you all. Our next interview was recorded at another conference, that's Tech Chill Milano in Italy. There I sat down with Valentina Milanova, the founder and CEO of Day, that is a gynecological health startup based in the UK. And as usual, I started the conversation by asking about Valentina's background and also the things that she did before founding the startup. Yeah, so I'm uh, the founder of Day. I started it in 2017 and before the company I uh, studied economics and, and law in the UK. I then went into uh, econometrics research and public policy work mm -hmm. and from there I got uh, recruited into the world of early stage ventures um, with Techstars and then Founders Factory. While um, I was working for uh, Techstars, I had the idea for, for Day and started mm -hmm. developing it on the side um, right. and then gradually evolved into doing it full, full time. Interesting. So you never actually practiced law or anything? I didn't, no, <laughs> just, just studied it. So the, the, uh, the idea of day, how did, it, how did it come to you? Where did it all start? So from my personal experiences with gynecological health, mm -hmm. I had my first painful period when I was really young. I was nine um, and then I got placed on hormonal contraception when I was 11, which is still one of the main ways in which we treat period pain. Mm -hmm. And as a result of being exposed to synthetic hormones at such a young age, I developed disruptions to my ovarian function, um, which then opened up a whole host of health difficulties that I was having throughout my teenage years and my early 20s. Um, and initially I thought that my experiences were unique and that I was strangely unfortunate, but gradually I realized that this is actually the experience of the majority of the female population due to the gender gap in uh, medical research and, and innovation. Right. So what was day like when you started it? So for the first two years of day, I um, was running it by myself with um, not even the realization that it could be a company. I thought it was a really interesting intellectual project that I wanted to pursue and I wanted to see how far I could take it. Um, I also had the salary for my full-time job, which I could use to experiment and uh, run the initial clinical validation, the initial production trials. Um, so initially I thought of it not so much as a, as a company to mm -hmm. be, but as a really interesting side project that I wanted to pursue further. And what was the product at this point? 
Um, the idea for our first product is a pain relieving tampon. Um, so utilizing the vaginal canal as a fast and safe way to administer medications, particularly for localized pain relief during menstrual cramping. Right. So, and how is it different from like taking a painkiller? If it's the same, if it's the same, for example, uh, if it's not like a normal painkiller over the counter, but also like the same, uh, the same thing, but taken through uh, like like normally as a pill. So administering medications through the vagina is the safest and most effective way to give medications in, in women because you bypass the liver and you bypass the, diagnos- the digestive tract, which allows you to automatically make your medications safer. Um, when you deliver something through the vagina, you also create a faster onset, so it works more quickly. You experience the uh, effect more quickly, which is important in the case of pain relief. Um, the vaginal mucosa is one of the most absorbent uh, mucosal members brains in, in the human body. Um, so when you administer medication through the vaginal mucosa, it enters the bloodstream much quicker mm-hmm. uh, and provides the effect much quicker. You also need a lower dose when giving medications through through the vagina, which further enhances the, the safety of the, of the medication or the active ingredient. Um, so it's one of the best ways to give medications in women, but because it happens through the vagina, which is still very stigmatized um, in medical research, in um, you know societal conversations, we haven't really explored the mm-hmm. root of vaginal drug delivery. Um, so that's one of the central premises of, of my company is exploring um, the vagina as a route for administration of medications in, in women. And then also repurposing the menstrual tampon, which people are really familiar with and really comfortable with, to do more than just soaking up menstrual fluid. Right. And uh, and for the for, for that first product, you also you cho- chose as the main painkilling ingredient a, a, a cannabinoid, right? Yes, uh, a, a combination of cannabinoids um, without THC, um, because cannabinoids provide pain relief. They activate the endocannabinoid system, which is one of the main systems in the body, just as we have the nervous system or uh, the system of um, our blood and, and our veins. Um, and the vagina is also richly saturated with endocannabinoid receptors. So again, it's a good location to provide endocannabinoid treatments. Interesting. So, And uh, did you consider any other ingredients? I didn't look at other ingredients because of the efficacy that we saw from the cannabinoid treatments. The other thing that we need to be mindful of when giving medications through the vagina is whether they affect the vaginal microbiota. So the balance of good and bad bacteria in the uh, vaginal tract, just as you have a gut microbiome and a skin microbiome, you also have a vaginal microbiome. And what was really exciting in our early clinical data um, was the evidence that the cannabinoid formulation didn't disrupt the uh, balance of good and bad bacteria in the vagina. So not only was effective, it was also safe in the sense that it didn't increase the risk of vaginal infections or uh, thrush or vaginal irritation. Did you, did you think about pursuing like a medical degree after you started all this? So I'm doing a public <laughs> health degree now. Okay, but that, that, that makes a lot of sense, I guess, because that's a lot of knowledge, a lot of competence that you need to need to get. But uh, I guess you have a research team as well within the company. Yes, we have a large research team and we also work with uh, universities and academics in order to complete our clinical trials and just generally inform the product development roadmap for the company. So and over these five years, the company has grown quite significantly uh, in terms of products, in terms of funding, in terms of headcount. So uh, can you give me like a few headline numbers, like how big is the company right now, how much funding you uh, raised and so on? So, so far we've raised uh, $20 million from venture capital and about $3 million in grant funding, which we're very proud of because fundraising for gynecological health is uh, really 
challenging. Less than 1% of private funding goes to gynecological health and less than 1% of public funding goes to gynecological health as well. The team is um, 50 people split between the UK, Bulgaria, and we have a, a team in the US as well. Um, and we're now um, proceeding to Series B. We've helped over 100,000 patients, in mostly in the UK and uh, in, in Europe as well, to uh, have better periods, to have better uh, diagnostic experiences because we have our second product, the diagnostic tampon, that's live on the market now. We've also obtained significantly, significant regulatory approvals uh, from the FDA in the US and um, the European and UK equivalents. Mm-hmm. So... Fundraising first. That was actually one of my questions. So you raised uh, one round in 2019. That was like five and a half million, no, and then another seen. 10 million pounds in 2022. So uh, last year, what was the difference between the fundraising process? Uh, uh, if uh, would you just put aside the actual stage, has it become easier to raise money for uh, femtech for gynecological health? I think it's easier to raise funding for gynecological health at pre-seed and seed because there's more funds and more female investors at the earlier stages. But as you progress through the rounds, it gets harder and harder as more of the decision makers are men. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with having male investors. It's just that they naturally will not empathize with the problem that we're trying to solve. And because of the stigmatization of gynecological health and the terms around vaginal health and menstrual health, I can still sense that when I walk into an investor room, I still make people feel really uncomfortable with the subject matter that I have to cover in order to explain how the company works. Um, so I think it gets harder as you, as you, as, as the company grows and as you progress from one round to, to the next. When when I raised the seed round, I had spoken to over 180 investors. And at that time, that seemed like a huge number of investors. People were writing articles like, meet the founder that pitched 180 investors to fund her company. For Series A, we've contacted over 400 investors in order to get the, the Series A funded. Um, so it gets progressively harder. And for Series B, as you're, as you're now fundraising or preparing to fundraise, is that actually harder um, I'm, we haven't yet kicked off our Series B fundraise, but I have a really long list of investors that I'm going to, to, to target. And at this point, are most of your investors uh, female, as in maybe like uh, partners whom you worked with during the fundraising process? Um, so we have over half of our board is female, um, but the two of the three firms that led our Series A round, we had male partners in those firms. So it's not impossible to convince men about the importance of gynecological health. It's just there's that initial hurdle because the natural empathy isn't there. It's not a shared experience. And you said that uh, most of your customers are still in the UK. Uh, Is that a conscious decision that you focus on that market? I think the UK was probably the hardest market we could have launched into um, because it's all public healthcare and um, people are not used to paying for any form of private healthcare whatsoever. Um, but I could fundraise in the UK and I uh, built our initial team in the UK. So so that's why we started in, in the UK. We're now expanding to the US um, and we think the UK and the US are going to be our main markets going forward. We do want to expand into the rest of Europe as well, but for cost and focus reasons, we're focusing on the UK and the US to begin with. 
Right, right. Well, that that probably makes sense. Although I'm always a bit, I always feel a bit offended that uh, companies just go to the UK and and then straight to the US while omitting the continental Europe altogether. So our products are available for purchase across Europe. You can purchase them from any country in in Europe, but we don't actively market uh, in. We don't actively advertise in those markets because you need to localize your website and, and your ads and your packaging and it can't all be done in, in English. It has to be done in the local language, yeah, yeah, which yeah. makes things more complicated. Has the mission of the company changed over the years? No, I think the mission has stayed the same, uh, which is to bridge the gender gap in medical innovation and to remove the pain, shame and stigma associated with gynecological health. And you've done this mostly by introducing new products. So, so growing the first product, of course, that is probably still the biggest, is it? Is it uh, your well, biggest revenue stream, let's say, the uh, CBD tampons? They're equal now. The diagnostic tampon is bringing in the same amount of net new revenues as the uh, cannabidiol tampons. So what's the, what's the diagnostic tampon? The diagnostic tampon is a way for people to get screened for vaginal infections, fertility-inhibiting pathogens, STIs, and HPV from the comfort of their home without needing an invasive speculum exam. Um, and once the screening has been completed, they can also obtain aftercare in the form of nurse consultations, prescription treatments, and personalized lifestyle advice through our telemedical layer that accompanies the diagnostic tampon. Right, so basically diagnostic tampon is just a tampon that you uh, insert, take take out and uh, post to the laboratory. Yes, and um, we give you all sorts of insights on your overall vaginal, menstrual and hormonal health on the basis of the um, tampon sample. And uh, how would it normally have been done, like in a normal clinical environment? You have to book an appointment, you have to physically attend that appointment and then frequently the appointment is quite invasive, uh, including a device called a speculum, uh, which has two metal forks holding up the vagina open. So a lot of people bleed after a speculum exam and generally prefer to avoid it due to its invasive nature. Once you have completed the exam, then a few days later you would be contacted with the results. And if there's anything um, that needs to be actioned in your results, you would have to go back to the doctor for a prescription treatment. Then you would have to go to the pharmacy to obtain your prescription treatment. So there's a significant economic cost uh, that remains unaccounted for, for the uh, time and, and the days that women have to take off work and have to take off their other activities in order to maintain their gynecological health. What we want to do is to streamline the process and to give more empowerment back to the patient so that they can swab themselves, choose their treatment and, and do everything from the comfort of their home. Is the accuracy lower in this uh, in this setup? It's higher. So screening with tampons rather than swabs increases the rates of sensitivity and specificity because the tampon covers a bigger area of the vaginal canal compared mm-hmm. to the swab. Makes sense. Um, and it also collects more vaginal fluids compared to the swab. Um, also, tampons are easier to position up to your cervix by yourself versus the, the swab. Because uh, in this case, the logical question is, why is not everyone using tampons for this purpose? So it's a, it's a great question because there's the initial clinical trials on using tampons to screen for STIs are from the 1980s. So we've known for a long time that tampons increase the rates of sensitivity and specificity for vaginal health screening, but no one has commercialized it yet. Okay, so you are, are you the first, are you the only uh, people doing this? Uh, first and only. 
It's, it's really strange. Like, if this is such a big uh, industry that there, there is uh, so much money, apparently, for, from what I have read so far, uh, why is nobody trying to do the same? Why is nobody trying to replicate what you're doing? Well, it's very complicated. You have to own your supply chain uh, for, for tampon manufacturing. So tampon manufacturing is still one of the last greatly monopolized industries out there. Um, there's one company in the world that manufactures all of the tampon machines. And there's another company that buys the tampon machines and manufactures for every brand. So there's big barriers to entry when it comes to the actual manufacture of the products. Mm -hmm. Then from a regulatory perspective, tampons are not currently considered medical devices. So we had to change the regulatory status of tampons as a category in order to be able to use use them for diagnostic purposes. And we had to complete extensive clinical trials in order to show sensitivity and specificity. You know, this takes years and a lot of funding. Um, then we had to obtain regulatory approvals, regulatory certifications as well under quality management systems like ISO 13485 and GMP. So there are significant barriers to entry and significant hurdles to overcome in order to be able to do this outside of a purely academic uh, theoretical setting. Yeah, but then as, as you have done this already, then I guess it sort of clears the path for the others to, to follow. Not Well, in some ways, but we've also set the bar quite high. Um, so our tampons are the first to be certified as medical devices. They're the only ones to be sanitized and produced in clean rooms. Um, so again, there's high barriers to entry when it comes to you need to own your supply chain, you need to be vertically integrated, you need to have the comfort with the complexity that gets added to your business when you get certified as a medical device. Um, there's higher standards that you have to hold your customer support staff to, your your marketing team. They can't just go and iterate AB uh, landing pages without getting clearance from the regulatory team. So it does add a lot of complexity, which most startups tend to want to avoid. And speaking of sanitization, so that's one of your uh, products, so the gamma irradiated uh, tampons. What's uh, what was the big deal about it? Why is it important to actually uh, like are not uh, all the tampons like sanitized and clean enough sort of to be used? What's the idea? So no tampon is sanitized other than these tampons, um, which is I think another example of the gender health gap and generally the low standards in in gynecological health. Um, we sanitize our food, our drink. Um, we sanitize um, plasters, so why would we not sanitize the products that go inside the human body and stay there for five days each month? Um, so as I mentioned, tampons are not considered medical devices in, in Europe or the UK, so there is no requirement to produce them in a clean room or to sanitize them in their final packaging. What we do is we treat tampons to the same standards as surgical tools or swabs or artificial limbs. So we um, have a final step in our manufacturing process after the tampon has been wrapped. We uh, have it undertake uh, gamma irradiation, which removes all of the pathogens from the surface of the tampon. And that's, and that's important because we don't want to have the tampon introduce a pathogen to the vaginal microbiota and change the balance of the uh, vaginal microbiome. How uh, how much more expensive does this all make your tampons? So our organic tampons that um, are just the plain nude tampon variety that they serve as a menstrual product. They don't have an additional functionality. We price match to other organic tampon brands, so they're not more expensive. The cannabidiol tampon, we price match buying organic tampons plus painkillers separately. And our diagnostic tampon is actually significantly more affordable than other um, solutions that are available on the market. Right. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And then another product that you introduced, uh, I think, uh, this year or last year already, the, the period pain clinic, the virtual, uh, virtual clinic. Uh, what is it? What was the idea behind it? 
So currently it takes between 7 and 10 years for a woman to get diagnosed with endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And these conditions are really prevalent. So they affect more women than endometriosis or sorry, than asthma or diabetes taken together. But we know very little about them and they take a really long time to, to diagnose because um, there isn't enough medical understanding about the symptoms associated with mm-hmm. endometriosis and, and PCOS. So with the virtual period pain clinic, we help people get diagnosed with the root cause of their period pain much faster and then we help them build a personalized period pain management plan which incorporates the best of all worlds so we incorporate pharmaceutical treatments prescription painkillers prescription medications for PCOS and endometriosis as well as holistic interventions such as heat therapy acupuncture our cannabidiol tampon Um, and the aim is to maximize pain relief while minimizing side effects right and how do you avoid uh, the con- conflict of interest in this case? Because you are one of the providers of uh, uh, pain relieving uh, means, right? Yes. Um, we use an algorithm that has been developed uh, with our clinical advisory board, with uh, physicians, OBGYNs, and GPs. Um, and that algorithm determines what will be recommended to every individual patient. So we don't recommend our product to every uh, patient. If they have an allergy towards cannabinoids or if they are not interested in using cannabinoids, then we wouldn't recommend um, our products. We, we don't have an underlying built-in bias towards our products. And uh, as far as I uh, saw when I um, checked uh, out the website, it's still only open for the UK patients? Because I can't... The period uh, pain clinic yeah, is yeah, currently clinic, only available yeah. in the UK and the US. All right, okay. And uh, so then, uh, do you think uh, the uh, industry of femtech in general has evolved much since you started day? Like, what's the state of the European femtech at this point, from your point of view? I think what's really concerning about the femtech space is that most gynecological health companies today are built in conditions of extreme scarcity. No one really has the funding that is needed to do rigorous clinical trials and genuine product development. So Femtech has very much focused on either repurposing existing solutions for a direct-to-consumer model or drawing on existing research and then commercializing it. It's a shame that this is the case. It's it's a real shame that there's such a huge gender funding gap still because... um, the fact that most femtechs are built in conditions of extreme scarcity will inevitably at some point affect the quality of the final product and and therefore affect the quality of the patient experience. Um, So I think the the femtech industry, while there's more players in it, is still chronically underfunded, both from a private and a public funding perspective. And the way to bridge the gender gap in innovation is to provide more funding. And how do you, how do you see this uh, change? And like, what do you think needs to happen uh, for this to change? I think it's going to be a very slow, very gradual change. Um, I'm excited to see that there's more unicorns in our space now. Companies, predominantly in the US, like Maven, who are demonstrating that there are real financial returns to solving problems in gynecological care. Um, so I think the change is going to be very slow and very gradual. And once there's more success stories investors will feel more comfortable backing the space and there will gradually also be more and more female investors who will naturally empathize with the problems that we're solving in gynecological health. I do have to say, however, that as a female founder in gynecological health, I do feel just like huge personal responsibility because I worry that if day is not successful, then that's going to be used as a reason for investors to not invest in gynecological health. So that's yet another 
burden that you know female founders and people in femtech have to carry on on their shoulders because there's you know we're such a small space there's so few success stories that um, I, I've had similar conversations with other female founders and there's this burden on our shoulders of, okay, you have to be successful for the industry, not just for your own company and for your own sake. And do you consider uh, they a success story at this point? I think for now, yes. Um, you know, it's, I, I would never, it's always day one, right? Like every, and we're still so early in, in our journey, but we've done incredible work. I would never want to undermine the, the work that the team has done. And we've achieved so much in a very short amount of time and with, very few resources. We've created a very extensive product portfolio that's medically vetted. Um, we've, you know, generated revenues that are um, significant, and I'm I'm really proud of what we've been able to achieve despite all of the hurdles. Right, and uh, uh, profitability-wise, have you uh, broken? Have you bro- broke even? Uh, have, are you on path to profitability? How We're do you on see a path it? to profitability. Right. Is this has this become more important uh, over the past uh, couple of years with the different market conditions? I think so. I'm really glad that it has become more important. I think when I was first fundraising, it was almost taboo to say <laughs> that you wanted your company to be profitable. I want to build a profitable company because I want to create something that's really sustainable. And I think the only way in which it can be sustainable is if it becomes profitable. So I'm excited that the market is turning and there's now more of a focus on sustainability and healthy unit economics and maybe growing at a slower pace, but being more thoughtful with your approach. So not just kind of sloppily throwing spaghetti at the wall, seeing what sticks, running these really costly experiments and then running out of runway. Uh, I'm excited about these industry changes. And in your case, you're clearly trying to uh, diversify your revenue streams for, from a clear uh, uh, D2C uh, offering that you had initially to now more something more subscription-based, I suppose, or something like that. We're also diversifying into retail, workplaces, insurance, public payers. Um, another key hurdle in gynecological health is growth. We're not able to grow through the same channels that uh, other companies utilize, including other companies in Mayo Health. Mm-hmm. So, for example, it's totally fine to advertise Viagra on Meta, Google, Amazon, um, and to talk about erectile dysfunction. But the moment we talk about um, the vaginal microbiome or menstruation, breastfeeding, menopause, our ads get banned and the quality of our accounts get downgraded. So one of the other key hurdles in the femtech space is actually being able to put your products in front of the people who use them. The New York Times recently had a really interesting investigation into this. They spoke with over 100 sorry, with over 60 femtech companies, all of which had the same issues of their ads constantly being classified as adult content or political content. Oh, wow. That's, uh, and have you ever got any explanation from, uh, from Google, from other platforms, why uh, this is happening? They want to prevent actual adult content from being on, on their platforms, which is fair and an honorable mission. But there needs to be a human in the loop um, so that the algorithms are not allowed to make mistakes. I wish that there was a account manager or a policy rep- representative that we could speak with at Meta or at Google or at Amazon that, that could review our ads and review our products and determine that there's nothing to do with adult content or political content in anything that we do. Um, but th- there isn't that infrastructure in place, which I think also is a signal that Meta and Google don't think that gynecological health is large enough or significant enough of a space for them to invest the resources in having that human in the loop to correct the mistakes from their algorithm. 
Right. No, I understand. So we are now at the Textual Milano conference and uh, your talk is coming up in a couple of hours. What is it that you're going to talk about? I think in a couple of minutes, actually. Have <laughs> oh. to go um, I'm going to talk about the gender gap in healthcare and right. how we a day are using tampons to bridge the gender gap in medical innovation. Right. And uh, do, you think, uh, do you think this will, uh, again, help... Uh, Uh, other uh, companies to uh, come and do the same thing, maybe just in the uh, um, in this part of the of the offering, not maybe with uh, pain uh, painkillers, but uh, with uh, creating this uh, kits uh, to have a uh, have uh, people diagnosed. I hope so. Um, I think gynecological health is large enough of a space for us to not become too paranoid about competition. I think a lot of early stage companies make the mistake of being too obsessed with protecting their um, innovation and their IP and therefore not talking about it or not engaging with companies that could be synergetic to what they're doing. I don't suffer from from this. I think, you know, it's a large space. We're a small enough player. I would rather see more companies in femtech rather than fewer. And do you have more products uh, being worked on uh, right now? What can we expect uh, to see in the coming years? Um, we don't necessarily have that many more new products coming um, because I, I feel like we've been pretty prolific over mm-hmm. the past few years with introducing multiple new products. We also have a line of bamboo pads. We have a flushable tampon applicator. Um, so we've been very focused on product development until now. The next key focus for day is growth and reaching as many people who need our services as possible and doing so in a cost-effective way. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Valentina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and good luck with everything you do at day. Thank you so much. And this is all we have time for in this bonus episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Once again, big thanks to Ida and Valentina for coming on the show. If you like our show, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about it and follow our updates on social media. Just search for The Next Web and you will find us everywhere. Music and sound engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Feel free to email me with any questions, suggestions, and opinions. I'm always at andri at thenextweb.com. In the meantime, have a good weekend and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Thank you.